to receive the seed that you have for us. God, we ask that uh, your word would accomplish that to which it is sent, Father God. And God, that indeed we would just be uh, open to allow your spirit to uh, speak into our heart. God, we just ask that you would take this time as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Yep, hit the button and it'll go away. When the red light's gone, it's good. So if you have your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 36. As we look at the, uh, there I am. If you look at the continuing message of Jeremiah, here's what, uh, here's what God's doing in chapter 36. In chapter 36, God is showing us how His Word is written, how His Word can be received, how his word can be rejected, and how his word is preserved. And it's kind of interesting because it's in, a, it's, it's in a microcosm. In other words, we see what happened to Jeremiah and his scroll. But the same exact thing is attributed to the word, the entire word of God. The Bible lays out for us in the book of Timothy that the, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. If there is a word in the Greek more dissected than that word inspiration, I don't know it. And the, the dissection of that word, literally that word means God breathed into. The concept is that the scripture that we hold, the, the word of God that's on your lap, you can count on that it is the verbal, plenary, inspired word of god the only authoritative thing in our life the verbal inspiration means every word plenary means that the entire bible is equal whether it's the red words of jesus or the black words of anybody else that every single word every single part is god breathed into it's inspired and not only is it inspired, but then the scripture tells us it's authoritative. That it is able to guide every part of our life. In Timothy, the, Paul would go on to say that it's, it is good for instruction. It is good for doctrine. It's good for rebuke. It's good for so many things that we can apply. What he's saying in that scripture is the word of God is authoritative in your life. There's, if there is, as far as I'm concerned, only one place that absolute truth can be found. And it's on your lap. 
It's in the Word. It will not be from our children. It won't be from our spouses. And it won't be for me. The authoritative, true, absolute true Word is what we have in our laps. The Word of God. It can be trusted. It's something that we can hold on to, that we can grasp, that we can put our faith in. And in Jeremiah chapter 36, he tells us a story that really relates to how the Word of God came to be in your lap. I mean, everybody asks, everybody has this question, well, where do we get the Word from? Who picked the books? I mean, did we leave something out? The answer is no. We didn't leave nothing out. Because God was working, man. God was the one who not only breathed scripture into those who wrote it, but then led the churches during the first century who were studying, who were passing the word around, who were delivering the letters that Paul or Peter wrote or, or that James put together. The Old Testament scriptures were those very things that had been passed on through the scribes all the way to the time of Christ. Christ authoritatively spoke on the Old Testament because as he was teaching, he quoted from the Septuagint over and over and over again. Well, that's the Old Testament you have sitting in your lap. The very same. So as we look at Jeremiah 36, we can see how God did that, how God worked that out, how the Lord brought it together. Listen, once we get past Genesis 1-1, we should be okay with the rest of the concept. In the beginning, God created from nothing. If you're okay with that, the idea that God was able to preserve His Word and put in your lap what you need, is that such a stretch? Oh, it's not a stretch. The Word that we have in our lap, the... The church councils that got together at the Council of Nicaea and other places as they put together. You know what they put together? What's in your lap is what the churches were using in the first century. That's what's in your lap. Not what were the churches ignoring. Why would you put that in? Well, here's a book that the church ignored. We should have that in the Bible, shouldn't we? Because, I mean, they found it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so it should be there. There's a reason they weren't using it. They're not stupid. They're using what was God breathed. Is God able to preserve his word through? Is God able to take his word from the time he spoke it to the prophet to put it in your hands? Yeah, he is. Because he is the God who created from nothing. So bringing the word to us, that's a simple concept. And that word that you hold in your lap, that you carry around... Through the ages, people have tried to extinguish the flame of the Word of God. You're aware of that, right? Through the ages, if it was not a supernatural book, if it was not a book that had God's stamp on it, they would have succeeded. But they haven't. Still, the number one bestseller of all time is there. You have it. You own it. Translated in more languages trusted by more people it's amazing you start considering that word that you have 66 books penned by 40 different authors over 1500 to 2000 years when's the last time you played telephone remember that game telephone where you whisper something to somebody else and they you do it in a circle so you got a circle of people and i whisper and then they whisper and they whisper when it comes to the end it's wrong 
Because you go through all those people and they screw it up. But you have the Word of God, 66 books, 40 authors, over 1,500 to 2,000 year span of time. One central message, God's redemption of man. How'd that happen? Because the Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed. Inspired of God. That the books you have were, were the books that the Lord wanted in the canon. Because they're the books that the church used. There's no great mystery to it. There's no great conspiracy. It's God presenting that for us. And so when we look at Jeremiah chapter 36, I love that part of it because it tells us that story, if you will, that of, of God's working and how we have the Word of God with us in view of just the book of Jeremiah. The Lord lays it out for us. So let's take a look. Hopefully we'll be able to see. In chapter 36, verse 1, says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. By the way, Jehoiakim, bad king. Son of Josiah. By the way, Josiah, good king. You, you realize the scripture lays out for us, good kings can have bad sons. I'm always amazed when we, when we have that concept. Here's what we as men try to do. Well, you know, <clears throat> David, for example. You know, David, he just didn't have enough time for his kids, so he screwed them all up. Okay. Every one of them kids had the same choice David had. David was not really particularly loved by his father. He was shunned and left in with the sheep when... When the most important day of the whole nation came together, when Samuel the prophet was visiting his dad's house, and, his, and Samuel said, bring all your sons, who did, who did Jesse leave behind? David. He didn't bring them. Why? Because he was little esteemed. He was the youngest. All honor goes to the firstborn, not to the youngest. But David becomes a man after God's own heart. Did David make mistakes? Sure he did. Did he show his children in those mistakes how to repent and, and go before the Lord with a broken and a contrite heart? Absolutely, man. He showed he was not perfect. He was not perfect. But what he did model for them is what a man after God's own heart looked like. That's what God tells us. So Absalom's rebellion. Stop laying it at the feet of David. Absalom chose chose to reject the truth and clamor after his own power and rebel against his father. Did his dad make mistakes? Yeah. You show me a dad who didn't. Find me a father on the pages of Scripture who was perfect. Well, Jesus would have been, but he wasn't married and didn't have any kids. Our Father in Heaven is perfect. But other than that, we all stumble, we all fall. What's the point? What's the point in all that? Listen, Josiah is a good, godly king, and his son was not. Because our kids get to pick for themselves. Scary thing. But our children get to choose whether or not they're going to walk with the Lord. They reach that age, the age of accountability at whatever point, and they get to pick. They get to choose. And we can spend all our time blaming mom and dad who are fallible, weak, unable to be perfect. Or we can lie responsibility where it should be. The one who makes the choice. The same word that David had, 
only more his sons had because he continued to write the Psalms. Couldn't they have listened to dad's song, Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Sure they could. And God would hold them responsible whether they chose to pick it up or not. It was available. That's going to play a point in chapter 36 with Jehoiakim in a minute, and we'll see. So Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Okay, the first part, in in this we see this concept of the word of God, this first part is the writing. How does the word of God begin? It begins with the writing. Listen to what he said. Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words I spoke to you. You want a definition of God breathe, that's it. God said to Jeremiah, this is the book of Jeremiah we're talking about, the scroll of Jeremiah. God said to Jeremiah, I want you to grab a scroll and write all the things I said to you. How does that occur? Because God brings it to his remembrance. The Lord said, I will speak them into you, you write them down. That's what scripture is. That's how it begins. It's writing the word of God passed from the Holy Spirit onto the pages of the Bible that is before you. And the scroll that Jeremiah wrote is no different than what you're reading right now. As we look, it says, now first, writing, writing these things. Write them down, all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, against all the nations from the day I spoke to you. From the days of Josiah, even unto this day. Now, Josiah, godly king, Jehoiakim, not so good. Josiah led the greatest revival until the next revival that occurs in Israel that Israel ever saw. Josiah becomes king at eight years old. I think it's eight years old. Josiah becomes king, an eight-year-old. He walks into the to the throne room, and he discovers there in the throne room, amongst the debris, sitting in a pot, the Word of God. They, they'd lost it for years. You know, it was a rule that the king was not only just supposed to read the Word of God, but write his own copy of it. What would happen if every president was like that? What would happen if every ruler... Everybody who was in a position of authority, it was mandated that they read the Word of God. Not only did they read it, but they wrote it. And that's going to really get it in there, right? So Josiah discovers, he finds this scroll. What's this? He opens it up and reads it. You know, and wow, it's the Word of God. We're not doing this stuff. So he tore down all the high places and the places where people were worshiping false gods and revival swept the land. Every revival that swept the land from the time of Josiah forward occurred because of a reawakening to the word of God. Not a reawakening to technology. A reawakening to the word of God. Because it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide the thoughts and the intent. It's able to work in our life jeremiah wrote this a long time ago still speaking because it's god breathed and it's good for doctrine and it's good for reproof and it's good for reproach and it's good to guide and it's good to lead and it's good to direct men 
So Josiah finds it. Wow, this incredible thing takes place. Now, we know that this occurred basically from the fourth year of Jehoiakim. This is about 605 B.C. 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar has just won an incredible victory against the Egyptians. And um, Israel's next. Judah's next. They're going to ultimately be conquered. They are conquered, I think, three or four times by Nebuchadnezzar because they would not just stay conquered. They kept fighting even though God said stop. But nonetheless, that's about the time that it comes. All the words that I have spoken to you. Hold your finger here and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Just flip over to Hebrews chapter 10 for a minute. And the writer of Hebrews, as we we take a look, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 15, look what it says. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. Who's he saying? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also witnessed to us. For after he had said before, this is a covenant that I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and into their minds. I will write them. And then he said, these sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Hebrews 10, 15 and on. You know where he's quoting from? Jeremiah. Does it say Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah? Well, what it says is, The Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. It's the Holy Spirit. God said, write down the words that I'm telling you. And what we have are the words that pass from the Holy Spirit through the pen of Jeremiah. According to the writer of Hebrews, that's exactly what he is. Quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31 on the New Covenant. He's laying that out. He's speaking. But who did it come from? He says it comes from the Holy Spirit. Listen, while we're there in Hebrews, flip over to second peter you just continue going to the right and you'll come to first peter first and second peter i'm pretty sure is after that unless i'm really supposed to be in first peter and then if i am we'll figure it out scripture lays out for second peter 1 verse 20 second peter chapter 1 verse 20 what's it say Well, let's go back to 19. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Let me tell you what that means. It's basic hermeneutics. Basic hermeneutics means there is only one interpretation for what the word of God says. How many interpretations? One. Multiple applications. One interpretation. It means what it says. We don't get to make it mean what we want it to mean. It means what it says. That's basic hermeneutics. What does the word say? Not what can I make the word say. What does the word itself speak? It's not of any private interpretation. One interpretation. Multiple applications. But what's he say? For prophecy never came by the will of man. But how? Holy men of God spoke as... They were moved by the Holy Spirit. We, we often talk about Pauline epistles and we talk about John's epistles and Peter's epistles. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit's book. Genesis to Revelation. That's why it's not confusing. That's not why it's not contradicting. That's why it's one continuous flow. Because just like we read in Jeremiah 36, 1 and 2... All the words I speak to you, write. And that's what we have in the Word of God. 
That's what we have throughout the word. Not words about God, but the word of God. God breathed, God spoken. Well, it goes on in verse 3. It says, And it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Why did God give the book of Jeremiah? We read the book of Jeremiah and we think, my goodness, man, it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. Why would the Lord lay these things out? Why would he speak to them this way? What's he say? He says, my heart is, maybe they'll hear what's coming and repent. The book of Revelation is the same thing. In the book of Revelation, you have a people known as the earth dwellers. That's those who put their hope and faith in the earth. Over and over and over again, the book of Revelation, that's how John describes the people. And then he says, not only that, he says, they, no matter what happened, no matter what they face, they would not repent. They would not change. And what's God's heart? If they would repent, he says, I'll forgive them. That's a great God. If they'll repent, I'll forgive them. That's all he wants. So he said, Jeremiah, write it down. Write it down. Not only is he going to write the book, but then he's going to tell us not only the writing, but how will the book be received? Listen, it says, it may be that the house of Judah will hear. So Jeremiah called in verse 4, called Baruch, the son of Neriah. Baruch wrote on the on a scroll of the book, all the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words which the Lord, uh, which he had spoken to him. So God spoke to Jeremiah. Jeremiah said the words that God was speaking to him. Baruch wrote them down. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am confined. So we know at this particular time, Jeremiah is in prison. That happens often to God's people. When God's doing a special move so you can you can silence them but it doesn't stop them from speaking from prison dietrich bonhoeffer is a great example of that if you say who get his book dietrich bonhoeffer spent majority of his life in prison died in prison for a faith but he wrote the cost of discipleship dietrich bonhoeffer said when god bids a man come he bids him come and die and you consider some of the things he wrote he's one of the guys on my list of books by old dead guys that i like to read but dietrich bonhoeffer that's that was his men of god they often find themselves in prison where did paul spend a lot of his time in prison or being transferred from prison to prison no different what about john who wrote the book of revelation where was he at the time he wrote the book of revelation in prison on patmos that's what happens to god's people listen so here he's in prison jeremiah is confined he cannot go into the house of the lord so you go therefore and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction the words of the lord in the hearing of the people in the lord's house on the day of fasting and you shall also read them in the hearing of all judah who come from their cities. So the word of the Lord is written, and the question is, how will the word of the Lord be received? How will it be received? And there's three ways, three things that lead to a receiving or a rejecting of the word, and we'll see it as we go on. 
So, in verse 7, it may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury which the Lord has pronounced against his people. Hey, the people may turn, they may receive it. Remember, that's what happened with Josiah. He read the word, it struck him in his quick, cut him straight to the quick, he, he pulled down the high places, great revival started because someone received the word of God. So here he says, take the scroll, the scroll of Jeremiah, take it out, the word of God. And the Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him. Reading from the book, the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Well, why in the world do we gather together on Sunday and read from the word of the book? Well, because that's how they did it then. He took the word and he spoke the word. And he read the word to whoever was willing to hear, whoever was willing to listen. So we see receiving of the word. This is where it begins with reading. If you're going to receive the word, it's going to start with reading. Someone's got to read the word. The word of God is living and powerful, but if it's on your shelf, it's not doing anything. It only does something when you open it up and pour it in. Reading the word. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, a year has passed, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed the fast before the Lord, all the people in Jerusalem, to all the people who came from all the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. So Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemarah, uh, the son of, of Shaphan the scribe, in the upper court and the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house, in the hearing of all the people. This guy, Shaphan, the scribe, he was the guy who helped Josiah. He was the guy who helped Josiah with the word. He was the scribe, as they discovered it, that was a part of the revival that happened at the time of Josiah. Well, Josiah's gone, and the only recognition that we have of this guy is there in the chamber of the son of Shaphan. We're going to meet him in verse 11. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, well, then he went down to the king's house. Second thing we see, it's got to be read. First, it's got to be read. Second thing, it's got to be heard. It's got to be heard. And we don't want to be hearers only, but what? Doers also, okay? So we see, here we go. It's going to be heard. It's heard by Micaiah. His father, his grandfather, Shaphan, read the word during the revival, the revival of Josiah. Man, he's a godly man. You want to do a, a word search on his name, you're going to find he's related to a lot of heroes in the scripture. And where was he founded? He was founded in the discovery of the Word of God, reading the Word of God, passing that, that on, passing it on to his kids. So we see receiving the Word. First we read the Word. Then receiving goes on to hearing. We've got to hear. We've got to hear. It kind of falls in line with reading. Reading is hearing. Someone's got to hear the Word of God for anything to happen. So Micaiah hears the Word. What's he do with it? He went down to the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were seating. 
uh, Elishama the scribe, Deliah the son of Shemaiah, uh, Elnathan the son of Achbor, Gemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. And Micaiah declared to them all the words he had heard. The second thing, first you hear, then you share what you hear. This is how the word is received. So Micaiah, he hears Baruch read the the scroll of Jeremiah. And then he goes, whoa, God is mad at us. There's a problem. And he goes, runs down, and the first thing he does is tell all these people, hey, you got to hear what what the word of the Lord is saying. And he brings all those people to hear. They all want to hear. Hey, hear. we got to hear what is going on. we got to hear what's happening. Therefore, all the princes sent Jehudai, son of Nathaniah, the son of Shemaliah, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, Bring in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people and come. So now all these people say, we got to hear. we got to hear what, what the word said. So there's this little mini revival occurring because Jeremiah was faithful to write what God spoke. And now that word is being received. Why is it being received? Because it was read slash heard and then it was shared. That's what happens. That's what's supposed to happen with the word of God. So in verse 15, they said to him, sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. Now it happened when they heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king these words. So they heard and they were brought to a place of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. They were afraid. Anyone who stands in the presence of God and is unafraid is not in the presence of God. Period. God is sovereign and holy and just and loving and gracious and good. But when we are seeing what he has in mind, if it does not fill you with the fear of the Lord, you don't really understand what he's saying. And if you really understand what he's saying, you hear, it brings you to a fear of the Lord, which compels you to share what God said. Brother, do you know that the word of God tells you if you do not receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will spend eternity in hell? You heard the word. It brought you to a place of a a good, healthy fear of the Lord and compels us to share. That's the word being received. That's the seed falling on fertile soil and bringing forth fruit. So these guys heard it. They're compelled with fear. Wow, they they looked at one another with fear and so they said, we got to tell the king. That's what happens when the word of God is received. That's what happens. It's written and then it's received. Well, but, but you see, if there is the choice to receive, what else is there? Yeah, the choice to reject. So that's where we enter next. The word is heard. The word is received. Now the word is rejected. Let's look. So we're going to tell the king. Let's tell the king. king needs to know. So they said to Baruch, uh, tell us now, how did you write all these words? Now before they tell the king, they want to know, is this real? 
Is this the authentic? Is it authentic? Is it authoritative? Is this something we can trust? So Baruch answered and said, He, Jeremiah, proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Hey, God said, right. Jeremiah spoke. I wrote. Here it is. This is what God said from the, from the voice of the prophet. That's what they want to know. Baruch's not Jeremiah, right? They know Jeremiah, but who's Baruch? He's a secretary. Jeremiah's in prison. He can't get out here. So they want to know this is real. They want to know that the word of God is something that they can count on. So we see receiving the word of God means hearing it completely. They heard the whole scroll, right? He read the whole scroll. That's the entire book of Jeremiah. It takes me an hour to do a chapter. Imagine what it would be to do all 50-some. Take some time. He read the whole scroll. So they receiving means hearing it all entirely, fearing it greatly, and sharing it instinctively. In verse 19 it says, So the princess said to Baruch, You go hide. Now that's an interesting way, isn't it, to say I'm going to go share the word? Because they know this knucklehead of a king that they got. Remember Jehoiakim? He's a, not a very good guy. He's not a good, he's not a godly king. So they're assuming he's not going to hear this very well. So they tell him, go hide you and Jeremiah. Now where's Jeremiah going to hide? He's in jail. They're going to find him. Well, anyway. Let no one know where you're at. And they went to the king into the court, and they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So here we go. This is how the word is rejected. So the king sent Jehudi to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter months in the ninth month with a fire burning in the hearth, before him, and it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns. Uh, by the way, a scroll is made up of far greater than three or four columns. Three or four columns means maybe he got through the first chapter. Maybe. Maybe part of the second chapter. So he's talked about the calling of Jeremiah and the, and the work that God was going to have him do. He hadn't got into anything yet. He just, three columns. When he had read three columns, the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was in the hearth until the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. But here's why. Verse 24. Yet they were not afraid. They did not tear their garments, the king nor any of the servants who heard all these words. So what do we know about Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim would not hear the entire word. He did only three or four columns. He had no fear of the Lord at all. He tore it, cut it, and threw it in the fire. So he will never share that word. He just wants to see it destroyed. Wants to see it obliterated, throws it in the fire. Well, nevertheless, El Nathan, Deliah, Gamariah, they implored the king, saying, Don't burn it. These are the guys who heard the word before, received it, had fear, and wanted to share it. Well, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded uh, Jeremiel, the, son, the king's son, Sarai, the son of Azrael, Shelmelai, and all these guys, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. 
Well, that's a miracle. And seeing how Jeremiah is confined, that could never happen, right? Yeah, occasionally we lose people who are already in prison. <laughs> Where is that guy? I can't find him anywhere. If the Lord hit him, he can hide him in plain sight, can he? He made, he made blind eyes see, he can make seeing eyes blind. They couldn't find him anywhere. They're, they're, they had a hard time. So it says that, uh, Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Take yet another scroll, preserving the word. Listen, we have writing the word, receiving the word, rejecting the word, preserving the word. He destroyed, the, if, if nothing changed, the scroll of Jeremiah just burned in the king's fireplace. So Jeremiah wouldn't be in your Bible, except for God. He said, take another scroll. Write another scroll. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. I want to say there's something like 50 extant copies of that book. It's not in dispute in anybody's imagination whether or not Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Bible has 12,400 extant copies. That means partial and or complete copies that we have from antiquity. The closest in year dating back to Homer, I want to say, I have to look because I might be off my numbers, but I want to say it's around 400 years after the death of, of Homer that we have the earliest copy. That's a long time. The Bible is as close as a few years and as many as a hundred. It's better... It's better um, scholar information than we have on any other book of antiquity. Any. That, all of Shakespeare's writings. If you throw out the Bible and say it's not good enough, you throw out Shakespeare. But they're not going to do that. Because the Bible is way, way more evidence for the Bible than Shakespeare, than Homer than any of the things of antiquity that we have. Way more. Is God able to preserve his word? They destroyed Jeremiah's book. What did God do? He just had him write another scroll. And there it is. Is he able to preserve it from them to us? Absolutely he is. Absolutely he is. He is able. And that's what he does. That's what he accomplishes. So after the king burned it, the Lord said, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written on it? The king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy the land and cause man and beast to cease from here. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, this is a blood curse on the line of Jehoiakim. He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body will be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. God says of Jehoiakim, who is in the lineage of David, 
He shuts down the line of Jehoiakim, that the line of Jehoiakim will not lead to Messiah. It doesn't mean that there's no longer a line of David, because there is. But the line through Jehoiakim will not reach Messiah. Will not reach the... the, the uh, if you were born in the line of Jehoiakim, I guess I should say, if you're born in the line of Jehoiakim, you cannot be king. And it's interesting because David, or as we come to Messiah, to Jesus Christ, we have Mary's lineage and we have Joseph's lineage. And they, one of them goes through Jehoiakim and the other one goes through Solomon. By one... He has a right to sit on the throne according to God's blood curse on Jehoiakim. He has a right, the Lord understanding, knowing that this curse would be on Jehoiakim, he makes a way. The Messiah remains eligible for the kingdom even though Jehoiakim, this knucklehead, received a, a blood curse on him because... Of the fact that he rejected the word of the Lord and destroyed it. He says in verse 31, I will punish him, his family, his servants for their iniquity. I will bring on them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah all the doom that I have pro- pronounced against them. But they did not heed. Listen, God held the nation of Judah responsible for not reading the scroll. Scroll of Jeremiah was there. Listen, we live in the United States of America where you can get a Bible just about anywhere. I don't care if you ever read it. You're responsible because it's there. You never pick it up. That doesn't pass the responsibility from you. It was available. The scroll of Jeremiah was available. They, he spoke it in the hearing of everyone in Judah and everyone in the temple so they were responsible. They could have gone, got a hold of the scroll at any time. They could visit Jeremiah. They could call Baruch just like these other guys did. Whether they did or didn't, they were responsible for it. The United States of America, the world today, is responsible for the things that are contained within the Word of God, whether or not they ever decide to open it. God gave it. If you don't look, it's on you. But he presented it. He gave it. And this judgment befalls. So Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And beside, there was added many similar words. Well, for example, some of the similar words that were added was Jehoiakim burned the book. Chapter 36. Yeah. Jehoiakim, he, he threw it in the fire. What the scripture lays out for us is here in chapter 36, is this little picture of how the word of God comes to us. As God breathed, God speaks it into the, the minds or the pens, if you will, of the authors who wrote it down. They took that that was written and they read it slash heard it. The hearing of the word of God compelled them to a realization that 
we aren't right with him. That fear of the Lord, that we're not right with him, that there's things that, that are wrong in our life, led them to a desire to share that truth with others. That's receiving. Rejecting, there's no desire to read, no fear of the Lord, so there will be no sharing, and it all dies right there. And so they try to destroy, they try to disrupt, they try to obliterate. And they, they take that word and they throw it in a fire. The death knell has sounded a number of times for the word of God, but it's still here. It's still here. I want to share a, a story with you guys just in closing on God's ability to preserve the word. Here's what, uh, here's what the story says. In a great rage against the Protestant gospel, Archbishop Woolsey began to burn copies of Tynesdale's Testament at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. The Catholics needed a steady supply of Bibles to burn, so the Bishop of London tried to buy as many as possible in Antwerp where the Bibles were printed. This is a historical account. And so it happened that one Augustine Packington, a mercer and merchant of London, and of a great honesty, the same time was in Antwerp, where the bishop then was. And this Packington was a man that highly favored William Tyndale. <clears throat> Put to the bishop, utterly showed himself to be contrary. The bishop, desirous to have his purpose brought to pass, commune of the New Testaments and how gladly he would buy them. Remember, he's buying them to burn them. Packington, then hearing that he wished for, said unto the bishop, My lord, if it be your pleasure, I can in this matter do more, I dare say, than most of the merchants of England that are here. For I know the Dutch men and strangers that have brought them of Tyndale and, and have them here to sell, so that if it be your lordship's pleasure to pay for them, I will then assure you, to have every book of them that is imprinted and is here unsold. The bishop, thinking that he had God by the toe, when indeed he had, as after he thought, the devil by the fist, said, Gentle Master Packington, do your diligence and get them. With all my heart I will pay for them, whatsoever they cost you. For the books are erroneous in knots, and I intend surely to destroy them all and to burn them at Paul's cross. Now, Augustine Packington came to William Tyndale and said, William, I know that you are a poor man and has a heap of New Testaments and books by thee, for the which thou hast both endangered thy friends and beggared thyself. And I have not gotten thee a merchant which with ready money will dispatch thee of all that you have, if you think it's profitable for yourself. Well, who is the merchant, asked Tyndale. The Bishop of London, said Packington. Oh, that is because he will burn them, said Tyndale. Yea. Mary, quoth Packington, I am the gladder, said Tyndale, for these two benefits shall come thereon. I shall get money of him for these books and make myself out of debt. And the whole world will cry out upon the burning of God's word. And the overplus of the money that shall remain to me shall make me more studious to correct the said New Testament, and so newly to imprint the same one once again. And I trust the second one will be better for you than was the first. 
So forward went the bargain. The bishop had the books, Packington had the thanks, and Tyndale had the money. Afterward, when more New Testaments were printed, they came thick and threefold in the link into England. The Bishop of London, hearing that there still were so many New Testaments abroad, sent for Augustine Packington and said to him, Sir, how did this come to be that there are so many New Testaments abroad? And you promised and assured me that you had bought them all. What happened? He did buy them all. And they took the money that he used to buy them all, to burn out all the New Testaments, to make more. And afterwards, he was unhappy guy. That's, that's just one of, I don't even know, thousands of stories. How guys try to destroy the word, only to have the word continue to move forward. God's able to preserve it. We have it. And we can trust it. So as we come to this time this evening, I just want to invite you as we consider that, know that what you hold is that which is authoritative and true. You can believe it and trust it. As we go into a time of prayer, I want to invite you to just open up your heart before the Lord. We have a time now tonight as we close out to just seek his face. Should the Lord uh, give you a word, something like that, we want to invite you to, to share that if the Lord lays on your heart uh, something that you ought to bring we want to encourage you to do so if the lord uh, leads you to to pray aloud with us pray this is what this time is for seek his face and find him because those who seek they'll find he's not hard to find he's right here amen Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you. We thank you for an opportunity to come before you. We thank you for an opportunity to open your word and to just see the truth that your word lays out. God, I ask that you would move in a mighty place, in a mighty way among us, God, that you would help us to just understand and, and to realize the truth, that your word is true and it's powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it can be trusted. We have exactly what you intended us to have. What we need, what is necessary, it sits on our laps and it is the authoritative word of God. Lord, I pray that we would find our rest in peace as we study your word and as we allow your word to impact our life. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.